Hey, well, welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're just visiting, welcome. If you have a Bible, we are in the book of Romans. Uh, As we continue our series through Romans, we're in Romans chapter 10 this morning. Uh, You can begin to work your way there. Uh, My name is Mark. If you're new, it's a pleasure to worship God and to open up God's word with you this morning. Uh, As you're turning there, the best book that I've read in a while uh, is Alan Noble's new book, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. Uh, I'll quote from this later on today, but uh, in, in the book, he starts with this term that I learned. It's, it's not the technical term, but it's the common term, uh, zucosis. Anyone know what zucosis is? Nobody? Okay, you're about to. Uh, so when you go to the zoo and, and you see the animals and you, you learn because it's educational and uh, it's also a little bit entertaining and you go to, uh, for example, the lion's uh, habitat because that's, we, we don't do cages anymore or anything like that, uh, you'll see, uh, usually you, you've seen this before, where, where lions just start pacing back and forth. And they, they'll just kind of go back and forth, back and forth. And you're like, oh, that's just because they're a lion. They're like, they're into it. No, it's because they have a, ki- a kind of psychosis. They're literally going crazy. Uh, and this happens in, in animals in captivity. And it happens in all animals in captivity to some degree. Uh, but we see it in the lions just pacing back and forth, back and forth. And, and if, if a prisoner is in solitary confinement, it happens in humans as well. They'll pace back and forth, back and forth. And this is in spite of the fact that uh, there's been advances in our zoos, right? And so we, we try to make it look like the Serengeti and the plains of Africa. And we're like, look, it's just like home, right? Uh, and then we bring in doctors and scientists, nutritionists. And we say, well, what's the ideal nutrition for a lion? We'll, we'll get that just right so, so they can be at home. And, uh, uh, but even still, you know, there, there are other things that make a lion a lion that in captivity they can't actually live out. Um, and if you, can, if you can calm them down enough and you can drug them up enough and, and even if you can get them to reproduce, then you're going to go to the zoo and be like, oh, there's new, there's new uh, lion cubs at the zoo. Let's go see those. And, and you'll go and you'll see a plaque and it'll have a little asterisk next to it, next to it and it'll say, born in captivity. And it's hard to not look at that lion as something less than a lion, born in captivity. But even the ones born into this environment that was made for them, but that hasn't really been made for them, the, the, even the ones born into that, they'll grow up and they'll experience zucosis as well. They'll, they'll begin to go crazy. Well, Alan Noble makes the argument that, that it, that's uh, a little bit of what has happened in our own world. In fact, both uh, physically and spiritually, relationally, metaphorically, uh, we live in a world that was made for us, but, but not really made for us. Like, we, we were made to, to, to be in the Garden of Eden. That's what was made for us. We were made to be close to nature, close to the animals, close to one another, and before the face of God. Uh, but, but as sin entered in the world and we moved east of Eden, increasingly, since that time, we've been creating a world that is made for us, but not really made for us. It is... Uh, separated. It is, uh, we, we go and make cities and buildings and, and we move to the suburbs and we spread out from each other and, and we are certainly distanced from one another and distanced from God. And, and even though the world looks like it was made for us, by us, in the end, it's not really what, what we were made for. And so we experience a kind of psychosis, zucosis. It's true spiritually, it's true relationally, it's true metaphorically. Mark Zuckerberg thinks he's about to usher in a new golden era of humanity called the metaverse. Have you seen this? 
So in the metaverse, we rebrand Facebook to Meta because uh, this is the, the, the grand vision. And, and as he announced the, that they are now Meta, they, they came out with a commercial. Maybe you saw the commercial. Uh, there's these two guys. They've had a, a rough day in the wor- real world, and, and they're coming home from work. And as they're, as they're coming home from work, they're kind of grumpy. They're standing in the elevator. They get into their apartment. They put on their virtual reality headsets, and then everything's good. They start to chat with new people and they, they share burdens. They, they laugh, they cry, they play games. And as they're playing this game, uh, one time they, they hear their neighbors being a little bit loud. And so takes off the headset, goes and hammers on the door, on the, on the wall. Hey, shut up over there. And the guy hammers back, you shut up. And they're, they kind of yell back and forth. And then they, they go put on their headset again. And they're like, oh, my neighbor, he's a jerk. But what they don't know and what we know is that they're the same people. And the message is, in the real world, those people suck. But in the metaverse, there's just harmony and peace. It's going to be amazing. He thinks it's going to be a utopia. I think it's going to be a dystopia. It is the most anti-God, anti-creational view of life that there is in advertising today. And there are a lot of them. And it is not the world that we were made for, that we were created for. But that didn't come about just out of a vacuum. Again, once we moved east of Eden, uh, we've began to create these environments that aren't really for us, but, but really it sped up at the Enlightenment. Uh, the, the grand project, the goal of the Enlightenment was to convince you and me that we are our own That we determine our value, we determine our future, we determine everything about us. We belong to ourself. And that's the message that you've drank in because we are the children of the environment. That you are your own, that you belong to no one else but yourself. And that is then coupled with this idea that I get to determine who I am, what I want to do, what, what I want to pursue. And it sounds like, on the surface, sounds like freedom. And so we tell our kids, you can be whoever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. And it sounds so freeing until you try to live it. It becomes one of the most burdensome things that we've put on ourselves and on one another. I've got to constantly justify my existence. I've got to constantly convince you and convince me, convince the world that I am worth it, that I am uh, valuable, that I am good. Uh, All these things, it's an exhausting pursuit because we want the world to affirm us. Even if it's just some likes on the latest photo that we put online, we want the world to say, you are good, you're right. Whatever you want to do, that's good. And so we live with this and we put this on our children. And we're all doing it in different ways. We're all trying to prove our existence in different ways. I remember just as a little kid, I wanted to be seen as nothing more than an athlete. So I loved PE and I loved recess and we could play any sports game. I loved my favorite day of the year for school was field day. And it was amazing. And sometimes I would win the, gold, the, the, the first place ribbon. And when I got the ribbon, I thought, man, I am worth it. I am valid. I just justified my existence. And whatever it is, if I could be seen as an athlete, that's what I want to do. And so dodgeball, I was all about it. Uh, and the, the biggest bummer was in fifth grade, they took away field day to, to be some like team building thing. I was like, this sucks. I want to be first. And, and I just remember that was just my whole identity. I remember in second day grade, we were on like a field trip and I was talking to my teacher and, and I was like, hey, I, I think I have athlete's foot. I didn't know what that was. 
She's like, well, you might want to get that checked out. I'm like, yeah, well, it's athletes. That sounds good. I'm an athlete. I must have athlete's foot. And they're like, no, you probably shouldn't get that. She should get that treated. But um, it didn't matter. So to so grow up, and I was uh, young for my grade, and so I get to uh, I get to high school, and I'm like, I wasn't six foot five then, I was like five foot two, and so I'm like, okay, this is my whole thing. I'm gonna uh, I've narrowed down my cho- sport of choice to basketball. I'm gonna play, and I'm gonna try out. After three weeks of trial, I remember riding my bike to uh, school that morning and uh, going up to see all the lists of the names that that on there, and very quickly I saw my name's not on the list. And I was like, oh. And I remember uh, now, I didn't know him really at the time. Brandon, uh, my friend, one of my best friends now, uh, he's, he sees his name on the list. He's like, yes. And then he turns to me and he realizes I'm not on the list. And he's like, oh, man, I'm sorry, bro. And I was like, oh, no, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. And, and in a sense, it is no big deal. It's just a sport. It's a game. But I had said, man, I am... I am only valuable if I am an athlete. And now that got taken away. I wasn't affirmed. I wasn't told, hey, you're good enough. And so I kind of floundered in that. But, but we do that in, in a thousand different ways. All of us are, are in some way trying to manage our image and, and manage ourselves because we live with the burden of self-justification. I think of a couple movies that, that show this. Uh, Rocky. Remember Rocky? Some of you are too young for that. 1976. Go watch it. It's a classic kid from Philly, about to fight uh, Apollo Creed, the infamous Apollo Creed, and he's talking to his girlfriend at the time, Adrian, and I don't have the accent or anything like that, but he, uh, he is trying to just say it doesn't matter if he wins, but, but listen to what he says before the fight. He says, I just want to prove something. I ain't no bum. I don't, it don't matter if I lose, don't matter if he opens my head. The only thing I want to do is go the distance, that's all. Nobody's ever gone 15 rounds with Creed. If I go them 15 rounds and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. Do, do you hear the, the angst in, in what he's saying? He says, it, it doesn't matter if he opens up my head. I'll suffer brain damage if I can prove that I'm worth something in this world. This is the burden of the enlightenment. You've got to figure out, you've got to prove to me and to everyone else that, that you are worth it. And then it's our job to affirm that in you. Or I think of uh, the movie Chariots of Fire as well. It's about the 1924 Olympics, mostly about Eric Liddell, but there's a kind of counter hero to Eric Liddell, uh, a, a, a guy of Jewish descent named Harold Abrahams, who's also a runner. And Abraham, listen to what he was saying uh, before the race. He said this, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? This is this question. 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Uh, or take uh, Albert Camus. French philosopher. I like Albert Camus. My wife does not like him at all. He's kind of the father of absurdism. Uh, not, not a believer at all, but, uh, but he, he, he recognized, man, life is, bo- he, he basically is kind of like Ecclesiastes. He's basically like, life is meaningless. And so uh, he writes a lot of uh, novels and stuff about that back in the last century. But listen to what he said. He, he wrote a, a book called The Myth of Sisyphus. And, and he was talking about how basically we're, we're all like Sisyphus. We're all rolling this stone up the hill trying to justify our existence and at the end of the day, it rolls back down and we start again and we start again. Here's his solution. He says, the struggle itself 
towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. That's his solution. To be clear, if you remember from your high school Greek mythology, Sisyphus is in Hades. He says the best we can do, the best we can do is pretend. Pretend that our lives, that we're working so hard to justify, matter. And if you pretend well enough, then you can get by to the next day. That's a sad view of reality. Now take Alan Noble, who wrote the book that I was talking about. He, he, he put it this way. He says, the whole project of actualizing, validating, fulfilling, vindicating, establishing, or justifying your existence is built on the faulty premise that your existence is something that needs justification and that you are capable of providing that justification on your own. Now, we're in Romans chapter 10, and you might be asking the question, what in the world does this have to do with Romans chapter 10? Well, well Romans chapter 10 is in, right uh, in the middle of this section 9, 10, and 11, where, where Paul has turned to the, the, the Jewish Christians in Rome who have some uh, struggles, some, maybe some objections to what Paul is saying, that, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, and, and he's appealing to them. And if you remember in chapter 9, the reason why this is all important is because if there was any people on the planet, if there was any people that should know better, that they don't have to struggle and strive to justify their existence, it should have been the Jewish people. God had come and, and chosen them, had, had blessed them, had made covenants with them, had, had lived with them, had said, hey, you are made in my image. There you have your innate value. You were made to live with me, and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. If, if the, anyone could rest in who they were actually made by and for, it should have been the Jewish people. This is what Paul said in the, the beginning of Romans chapter 9. But, but, but they, they, they didn't find it. And, and Paul's been wrestling with these two questions. How is it, on the one hand, that the Gentiles, the pagan Roman Gentiles that worshiped gods of power and debauchery and, and, and all these things, how is it that somehow when the message of the gospel came that, that a crucified criminal of the Roman Empire uh, is God who conquered death in the grave, when that came to them, they opened up their hearts and their lives and they flooded into the kingdom of God. How was that even possible? And the answer was, by God's sheer mercy and sovereign grace. It made no sense for Romans to come to this Jewish Messiah. And, and then the counter to that is, how was it possible for people that had all the blessings, had the scriptures, all of it that was meant to point to Jesus, how was it that when the Messiah came, were full of grace and truth, they missed it? And Paul's answer was, because they fell into a trap of trying to justify their own existence when they never should have. And, and that danger for the Jewish people is still a danger for you and for me today, even if you are a follower of Jesus. You can say, I believe in Jesus, my worth comes from Jesus, and then go live your life like you have to justify your existence all day long. And it's exhausting. And in the end, it doesn't lead you to life and hope and peace. It leads to death. So Paul is going to ask and answer three questions in Romans chapter 10 uh, that is related to this. And on the one hand, these are questions that have, uh, have dominated the whole book of Romans. Is it possible to be made right with, before God? And he's going to say emphatically, yes. But again, he's now dealing with Jewish people from their scriptures to show that they all point to Jesus. So again, that's not new to us. 
And, and then the second question is also not new. Well, then what is necessary for this to be made right with God? And the answer is emphatically faith is necessary. And again, that's not new. But, but it is interesting that Paul would continue to come back to this. Sometimes we think of the gospel as for the people that don't know Jesus. And it is that. But, but Paul, what does he say in the beginning of Romans? He says, I'm so eager to see you and preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. To you Christians who are in Rome. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul understood this truth about the gospel and, and something that he wants us to see in chapter 10. You and I need the gospel every day. You and I need to preach it to ourselves. We need to come and sing songs. We, we need to hear it preached over us because we are so tempted to go the way that the Jews did. Say, yes, I have good relationship with God and now I'm going to prove it. And the gospel says, no, you are worth it because he says you're worth it. So the third question will be a little bit unique and we'll get to that in a moment. But let's jump into uh, Romans chapter 10. I'll pick it up in the last verse that Rick ended last week. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, if you were here last week, you remember Rick's illustration. There was this hourglass. He says the hourglass kind of represents the whole scale of history. So all of the, the covenants and the promises and all the law and all the Old Testament comes and it, it comes down to that very thin point where one grain of sand comes out at a time, which is Jesus. And then it comes out and the new covenant, the new, uh, the new Testament, all that comes out through Jesus. That's the picture that 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 Rick put before us. For Christ is the end of the law. It all comes through Jesus. And then he starts to deal with an objection. Verse five, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So he's quoting Leviticus chapter 18, verse five. And what, what he's doing is uh, he, he's going to the very verse that maybe some of uh, his Jewish detractors have put back at him. He said, well, Leviticus 18.5 says that if we do the law, we will live. And Paul says, yes, let's look at Leviticus 18.5. Because we do this all the time. You can take verses out of context and make them mean all sorts of things. But if you look at Leviticus 18, what's going on? What is Paul actually saying to his people? In Leviticus 18, it's all about do not follow the sexual practices of the Canaanites and the Egyptians. And if you do not follow them, but you follow my way, you will have life. You will have flourishing. So it wasn't about you will have a spiritual righteousness to get into heaven. It was, here's my law for my people. And if you obey my law, it's going to go well for your society. It's going to go well for your families, for husbands and wives, for, for children, for sons and daughters. If you follow the law, my good instruction, it is meant for your flourishing. If you follow the law, you will live. In context, it isn't anything about if you follow the law, you will have righteousness. And that's the whole point of God's law as well. This God created the world. He created men and women. He knows what flourishing looks like and how it is pursued by societies and by families and by mothers and fathers. And he says, follow the law and you will live. So it wasn't about righteousness. And he goes on. Uh, verse six, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. 
Well, let's pause right there. He's, now he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. And this seems a little bit obscure, but, but again, Paul is, is trying to show the Jewish people that this is not new information for them. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses is telling the people that, that, that God and his law and his ways are not far from us. You don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to dig a hole to go find God's ways and purposes. You don't have to do that. And now Paul is putting Christ on that. He's saying, don't say we will ascend into heaven. Like, what spiritual activity can we do strong enough and hard enough that we can go up and be with God? And he's saying, Moses said, and I say, you can't. What spiritual activity can we do that we can dig deep enough and go into Hades and and bring Christ out of that? He says, you're missing the point. The gospel is this, that you you and I could never go into heaven to go to God, but God came down in Jesus You and I could never go into the grave to get Jesus up because he conquered death in the grave and he rose again. He's saying that the gospel, the the, the hope of eternal life, the hope of justifying your life before God is not far. It doesn't require you to do anything. It's as close as our hearts and our lips. Look what it says, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and your heart. This is the word of faith that we proclaim. So it isn't about religious activity or striving or obeying any laws. It's about the presence and the closeness of God right here. So is it possible to be justified before God? The answer is an emphatic yes. How does that happen? Well, that happens by faith. Again, this isn't new in the book of Romans, but look at verse 9. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart one believes and is justified, and with your mouth one confesses and is saved. Again, he points us to the central doctrine of the New Testament, faith, by grace alone, through faith alone. And and so it's always good to remember what what does the Bible actually mean by faith. There, There are three aspects of biblical faith. And sometimes people stop at one and don't go to all three. And if you do, you miss it. So you have to have some knowledge of the truth. So, so we don't believe in faith for faith's sake or just believe whatever you want as long as you're sincere. No, there has to be some knowledge of what's true. What's true about God? What's true about Jesus? What's true about us? What's true about what he did on the cross in the grave and conquering? You have to know some things. But the Bible tells us that even Satan and the demons know all those things. They know them better than you do. And yet they have no relationship with God. So that is not sufficient. Uh, So after uh, knowledge, you need agreement. You have to say, yes, I agree that that is true. That is right and that is good. And so you have to have some mental assent to it. But even that is not sufficient. And this is what really scares me pastorally. I think a lot of people have knowledge of the truth and agreement with the truth and think, I'm good. But, but biblical faith, the word pisteo, is active trust. It is saying, I know the truth, I agree with the truth, and I'm going to live my life in such a way that I am not my own, but that God is in control of my life. I give you my life. You are God. I am not. I'm going to follow you. And with my life, it looks different because I am submitting to your reign and your rule. I am yours. 
And, and notice what the confession is. He says, with your, your mouth and your heart. Th- these are not two different things. It's two sides of the same coin. If you come to see and treasure Jesus as the, the treasure that he is in your heart, the natural overflow is to confess him with your mouth. And so these uh, is what it means to be a Christian. And notice what we confess, that Jesus is Lord. And again, if in 21st century Parker, Colorado, we're like, yeah, okay, we're in church. Of course we agree Jesus is Lord. But, but again, think about who received this letter first. Romans blocks away from Nero or the other emperors. And it was only permitted to call the emperor Lord. And so they would say, uh, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. Nero is Lord. Uh, they would even say, Nero is Lord of all creation. And, and, and as good Romans, you would profess that in the streets, you would profess that in the, the, the crowds, and you would shout, uh, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. And Paul says to the people living in that city, to be a Christian is to not say Caesar is Lord, but to say Jesus is Lord. This was this was potentially seen as traitorous. This was seen as politically subversive. This was, this was dangerous to proclaim Jesus was Lord. But to have real faith is to trust him and to proclaim it. But, but there are other implications that are for another sermon. But Jesus is Lord. That means that we're not Lord. You are not your own. Jesus is Lord. And that, in the end, is incredibly good news. It says, if you believe in your heart and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so this leads us to the third question. How is faith birthed and sustained? So if we can be made right with God and it's done through faith, how does it, how does it come about? How does God work faith into us? Do we just work it in ourselves, or is there a pattern here? Well, there is. Look at verse 11. It says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, I didn't quite get to my spot. I just wanted to point out there, this is for everybody. This is everyone, all Jews and Greeks, everyone that calls on him. Verse 14, how then... Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Paul says, how does this come about? And he, he, un, he starts to ask some rhetorical questions. It's a chain uh, of questions. In fact, you can feel the full weight of the questions if you put them in reverse order. So uh, people are sent. People preach. And don't just think preachers like what I'm doing now. People proclaim Jesus, whether one-on-one or writing a book or uh, preaching in front of a crowd. Uh, People preach, people then hear, people then believe, people then call on the name of Jesus. So how is faith birthed and sustained in us? In his divine sovereignty and power, he says, it's birthed and sustained by hearing the gospel. By hearing the gospel. And if we were to go around and share our testimonies, this would be the common element for all of us. I, I was living my life and, and these were the circumstances of my life and this person came and 
told me the gospel. Or I went to this church and it preached the gospel. I read this book and it told me the gospel. It is a hearing of the gospel that the Spirit then uses to activate in our lives to come to know Him. But it's not just to come to know Him. It's to come to grow in Him. It's to come to, be persevere, to persevere in Him. This is why it's so important for your sake and for your family's sake that you prioritize the hearing of the gospel. It's for your soul. And so it comes by hearing. If we work backward, we see verse 17. He kind of concludes. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we want to uh, make that a pattern in our lives. Now, this whole passage has massive, massive implications for us. Massive. First of all, it has the two greatest invitations in the history of the world. The, the, the first, the greatest invitation in the history of the world, if we read Romans chapter 10, is this, that if you heard the gospel, you can come and receive faith. You can come and receive Jesus. You can be made a new creation. You don't have to strive to justify your life anymore. Christ has done that for you. And if that is you this morning, if you know the truth, you've heard the truth, you agree with the truth, and you want to say, I I believe Jesus is Lord, I give him my life in exchange for his, in that moment, the invitation is, you can come into the kingdom of God. That's the greatest invitation the world has ever seen. And then it has the second greatest invitation as well. The second greatest invitation is built into those last verses that we saw. And it is simply this. If you are, if you have come in, if you have trusted in Jesus, now you are invited to go. So the greatest invitation is to receive. The second greatest invitation is to go, to to go and be the person that speaks the gospel into other people's lives, that shares the gospel, that that shares the gospel to uh, the uncle that's heard it 400 times. And just believe that God awakens faith. Maybe it'll be the 407th time of you sharing the gospel. It's important to remember our place in the story. I'll put it up here. Last week, Rick showed us that, that this is the, the storyline of God's narrative. And we need to find our place in it. So there was creation. There was fall. The Old Testament had these promises that pointed to Jesus. And out of Jesus uh, came mission for the church. Spirit-empowered mission. So if we were to zoom, 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 zoom into that and go to 2022 Parker, Colorado, we'd see Little Redemption Parker somewhere on that mission arrow. And that that's where, we believe, that's where we belong. That that's where we're at. This is what gives your life eternal purpose and meaning to go with the mission and purpose of the gospel. You don't have to create your own meaning. You don't have to create your own purpose. You have a purpose. It's on mission with him, empowered by him. And so we go. The way that we put it here is to our neighbors and the nations. We say that because this is an all play. Not everyone's going to go to the nations. We understand that. But everyone has neighbors. Or put it another way, you have people in your life that only you in this church have interaction with. You have influence and interactions with coworkers and friends and neighbors and family members that none of us have. And you alone have been entrusted with, with the message of the gospel. And the Bible tells us this morning that as you proclaim the gospel, the Spirit of God in His sovereign grace can awaken faith, bring people into the gospel. So who is it for you? Who's your one? Who's the one person you're praying for? Who's the one person you're asking God, give me an opportunity to proclaim the gospel? Take a moment and, and ask the Spirit to show you who the one is. 
But this also has massive implications, just not, not just for our neighbors, but it does have massive implications for the nations. So we want to be a church that isn't all about ourselves, but, but go to our neighbors and our nation and to the nations. And we are praying, actively praying, that God would raise up among us some that will go preach the gospel so people will hear, they will believe, they will call on Jesus they will receive. N.T. Wright, who's an uh, Anglican theologian, he put it this way, all Christians reading these verses in Romans chapter 10 should at least ask themselves, and more important, ask God in prayer whether they are among those who will be sent as heralds, enabling men, women, and children in every country and race to hear the good news so that some at least may come to believe. So would you just at least pray about it? Would you at least pray about the great commission that Jesus entrusted to each of us? What what if we were to actually believe these truths? You know, the catechism that we share every week, what what if we actually said, I believe it, therefore how should I live in light of it? Question number one of the catechism. Maybe you remember it. It actually comes from the Heidelberg Catechism where where, uh, this book, You Are Not Your Own, is kind of based on. But our question number one of the New City Catechism is this. What is our only hope in life and death? That's a good question. What's our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. If we really believe that, we would stop striving to prove to the world that we're good enough. We stop trying to make everyone believe that we're worth their attention. We, we get to live quorum Deo, before the face of God. We get to receive the smile of God. And if you can understand that God smiles uh, at you, then all the frowns of the world, Tim Keller says, don't matter at all if you understand this truth. How freeing is that? This is true freedom. What if we left here with just that idea that I don't have to prove myself. I get to just live before the face of God. How, how different would our lives be? It, it makes me think again of uh, chariots of fire. See, Harold Abrams said, I've got 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence, but will I? But, but there was another runner there, Eric Liddell, who would go on and be a missionary in China. But, but he was talking to his sister and he says, he says I, I don't know why, but for, for whatever reason, God made me fast. And then listen to what he said. He says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I run to the glory of God. And there's two ways to live life. They're both running on the same track, by the way. They're both running the same race, but it's from two radically different perspectives. I don't know why God's made me fast, but when I run, I feel his pleasure. I run for his glory. That's freedom. That's what God, that's the invitation to you and to me to run for the glory of God. I'm trying to prove our existence because Jesus has proved our existence already. So I'll close with a quote from Noble's book. Listen to what he says in just kind of summary, bringing this together. He says, if we belong to Christ through his sacrifice on the cross, the nature of our desire for righteousness changes. We don't receive God's loving affirmation, well done, good and faithful servant, by acting righteously. 
Rather, when we acknowledge that we are not our own but belong to Christ, when we accept that Christ died for our sins and seek to live before him, God looks at our face and sees the beauty and righteousness of his son. And the judge of all assures us that we are loved, accepted, and adored. We live before a personal God, not the mechanical God of proceduralism or efficiency, the relentless, impersonal, litigious, crushing force of progress and self-improvement is ended in Christ. The demands of universal benevolence, which ask us to carry the world on our shoulders, are resolved in Christ and his providence. And he concludes, in this way, we are not only able to stand transparently before God without fear or condemnation, but we are only truly ourselves when we do. You don't have to justify your existence. You can stand before God, covered in the righteousness of Christ, by grace through faith, and live out of that reality. Oh, let's pray and make, ask the Lord to make that true in our lives. Father, thank you for your word to us today. Thank you that it is possible to be right before you by faith. Thank you that we've all heard the gospel. Even today, we've heard and sung the gospel. Father, so I pray that if anyone here has not yet trusted you with their life, that they would turn to you in faith and receive the good condemnation, the good, the good affirmation that you have put on us in Christ. Lord, I pray that for the rest of us, that we would live out of this truth this week, that we wouldn't fall into the same error of of receiving your grace and then trying to prove that we deserved it. But let us just walk and live in it this, this week as a church. Lord, also help us to know who to share the gospel with this week. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you stir in the hearts of those that you are calling to send up and send out here to proclaim the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.